welcome to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast, where each week, Pastor Jeff Cranston explores biblical theology that provides practical life applications in an understandable way. Thanks for joining us at the table. Let's get started. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Kitchen Table Theology. I'm your host, Tiffany Coker, and with Pastor Jeff Cranston, we're on a quest to learn what the Bible teaches about doctrine and theology. These are topics that many Christians find challenging, confusing, and out of their reach. And we are always aiming to do this in a way that applies to the lives we lead. We do this because we agree with what the French reformer, theologian, and pastor John Calvin said, Error can never be eradicated from the heart of man until true knowledge of God has been implanted in it. We desire that the scriptures be implanted in all of us. Therefore, we want to help you to be strong in your faith doctrinally, knowledgeable in and of the word theolog- theologically, and grow in your love for Jesus exponentially. On today's podcast, we're going to do some Q&A. We've been saving some questions up for too long now, so we will try to our best to answer what inquiring minds want to know. We have three let's, questions let's today. Let's hope. Three questions today. The first one is from Adam. He writes, Hi, Pastor Jeff. I would like to hear your opinion on the order of Melchizedek. Are Jesus and Melchizedek the same person? I mean, I want to begin by saying, are you serious right now? (laughs) We're, We're starting with this one. This is hard. Good question, Adam. And hello again, everybody. Thanks for joining with us. Uh, with Tiff and I here on Kitchen Table Theology. And yeah, we thought we'd do a little bit of a QA. and a It's been a while. I think it's been a year or almost a, a year since, since we've done, we've a, done Q&A. a Q&A. So we've gone way too long. But thank you for sending your questions in. And we have we, we have some tough ones today. So let's jump right in. So we'll, we'll just get in the deep end of the pool here. So Adam is likely referring to some of the teaching in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And he's referencing a high priest named throughout the letter there by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is mentioned also in Genesis and in Psalms, and his name means king of righteousness. And we know that he was a a king of Salem, and Salem uh, was an early name for Jerusalem. And we also know he was a priest of the Most High God, and he disappears from the scene in Genesis about as rapidly as he appeared You read about him in Genesis 14 for a few verses, and as soon as you see him, and as soon as we meet him, he's gone, which is a little bit puzzling. But Abraham and Melchizedek initially came into contact with one another following a military victory of Abraham's over the king of Elam, whose name was Keterlaomer, Keterlaomer, and Keterlaomer had three allies, and Abraham and the Israelites beat them all. Well, Melchizedek shows up, and he shows Abraham and his worn-out men his friendship toward them by giving them bread and wine, and he gave it to them in the name of El Elyon, which means Hebrew for God Most High. And Melchizedek, he blessed Abraham, and he thanked God for granting Abraham victory in this conflict. And you can read about that in Genesis 14. Abraham, in turn, gave a tithe. He gave a tenth of all the things he had gathered, I think, and I'm gathering battle spoils and things like that, or whatever they had. He gave a tenth to Melchizedek, and by doing that, he demonstrated, Abraham did, that he recognized Melchizedek as a priest who was in the spiritual chain of command superior to, to Abraham at this point 
by performing that act. Now, David wrote many psalms, but in Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, he presents Melchizedek as a type of Christ. Then in the book of Hebrews, where Melchizedek and Christ are both referred to as kings of righteousness and peace, that whole concept is reiterated. So the, the author of Hebrews demonstrates the superiority of Christ's new priesthood above the old Levitical priesthood order and the priesthood of Aaron, which was a very significant priesthood. And the author of Hebrews uses Melchizedek and his special priesthood to, to point out Christ's priesthood as well. So if you're confused, hold on. There's a lot. That, that was a lot, right? That was a lot. <laughs> well, some people contend that, and here's why Melchizedek is important. Some people contend Melchizedek was a Christophany or a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Some propose that Melchizedek was actually Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. And that's a very plausible theory, given that Abraham had received that kind of a visit before, also in his life. In Genesis 17, Abraham saw and spoke with the Lord, and the Hebrew there is El Shaddai, and we read that he spoke to him in the form of a man. So okay. some, some people believe it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. All right, let's hit pause right here. I know you have probably mentioned this before on another podcast, the word Christophany, but maybe mm-hmm. let's revisit that one. Can you explain exactly what is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus? Because if people are new listening, this might be a new one for them. Yes, and I, I would love to go back to the podcast where we have spoken about this, but I couldn't find it. And after 141 podcasts, I, I don't know where it is. It we, we did do the doctrine of Christology. It may have been in that one, but I don't really know. So yeah, we, we've touched on it before, but it's always worth repeating. So what we're talking about here is called a Christophany, or sometimes it's also called a theophany. And it, it, it's perhaps worth an entire podcast or two, but let me hit it quickly. If we're paying attention to the Old Testament, we'll find that by the time we meet Jesus in the New Testament, it's not actually the first time we've met him. Uh, If you read through the Old Testament, you've already been introduced to him. So in the Old Testament, there are frequent theophanies or Christophanies. The the word theophany comes from the Greek words meaning theos, which means God, and uh, the Greek verb meaning to appear, the, the P-H-A-N-Y of that means to appear. So a theophany is an appearance of God. A Christophany is an appearance of Christ. I'll give you a, a, an example or two. In the Garden of Eden, we're reading in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, quote, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, end quote. In Genesis 12, 7, in Genesis 17, 1, we're told that, quote, the Lord appeared to Abram, End quote, and spoke to him. Genesis 18, we read the Lord appeared to Abraham. In Genesis 32, Jacob even wrestles with someone he later identified as God. In Exodus 24, we read this Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they, he's talking about Mount Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. In Exodus 33, that even says the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So there are numerous Old Testament appearances of someone also described as an angel of the Lord, but who is, unlike other angels, treated as worthy of worship and who was identified with God himself. 
in a what I think is just a remarkable passage in Kitchen Table Theologian. Maybe you've noticed this before, maybe you haven't. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the Apostle Paul speaks of God's people in the Old Testament being led through the wilderness by Christ. And Jude is correspondingly quite explicit about the identity of the one who delivered God's people from slavery in the Old Testament. And Jude writes this, I want to remind you, he says, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Christ is indeed present in the Old Testament. We have it on the authority of the New Testament that he was present in the old. That is so interesting. I definitely think we should do a podcast or two on this. There sounds like there are a lot of our Old Testament stories that we probably know and remember and maybe just missed that Jesus was present in that story. So I think maybe we should do a podcast on that. What about the next one? <laughs> the next podcast? Yes, let's do it. Well, all right. Well, that's what we'll do then. We may, we may even do two. Because it's a it's a pretty pretty cool thing. All right, perfect. Back to Melchizedek. All right. So given that Abraham had experienced a, a visit, probably more than one, th- this is a theory that might very well be true. The theory that that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ, was Jesus Christ pre incarnate in the Old Testament, and, and like I mentioned before, Abraham encountered the Lord as a man and had a conversation with him. So that would make total sense if if God appeared to him in the form of of Christ. Now, let's go on to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 6.20 says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Normally, the word order there uh, would denote a line of priests occupying the position one after the other in succession. However, none are ever brought up through the lengthy time between Melchizedek, which was Genesis, and Christ, which that's an anomaly, but it can, I think, only be resolved by supposing that Melchizedek and Christ are actually the same person. So it follows that Christ and Christ alone maintains the order of the high priest on our behalf for, for all time. So, Tiff, how about reading uh, Hebrews 7, 3, 4? This, this verse sort of blows my mind. Sure. Hebrews 7.3 says that Melchizedek was, quote, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever, end quote. So the difficult question there is, is whether the author of Hebrews means this actually or if he means it figuratively. So it, it's indeed it's challenging to understand how the description in Hebrews could be applied to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, if you take it literally. Because no ordinary person, at least none that I know of, is without father or mother. If you don't have a father or mother, <laughs> you don't exist, right? And, right? and no earthly king or no earthly priest remains a priest forever, which is what you read. Mm-hmm. And if Genesis 14 is a Christophany, a, a theophany, then then God the Son appeared to Abraham and offered him his blessing, and in that moment he was called Melchizedek. If Melchizedek is being described figuratively in Hebrews, then the assertions about him having no antres, no uh, no ancestry, no genealogy, no beginning or end, or having this endless ministry of are, are it, it just highlights how how enigmatic he was when he first encountered. Abraham. So, Adam, back to your question. Are Jesus and Melchizedek 
the same person? Yes or no? <laughs> we don't really know. <laughs> Isn't that great? Hey, that, both sides great. have a case. Yeah, both sides have a case to make. So, at, at the very least, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and he foreshadows the Lord's ministry. However, it's also feasible that Abraham encountered and honored the Lord Jesus himself after his exhausting battle in Genesis 14. Personally, I think Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in Genesis, and that Melchizedek. I'm having this. I'm glad we're done with this question. I can't even say his name anymore. <laughs> Melchizedek. That Melchizedek. I, I do believe that Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. But this is one of those things we we're, I, we may just have to wait to discover when we get to heaven. That is definitely an interesting question, Adam. Thank you so much. My question in that, every other place in the Old Testament that I can think of, when a theophany or a Christophany <laughs> happens, it says the angel of the Lord or something along those lines. Why did this one get a new name? Why Melchizedek? Just to make it hard for us to say and make us question. <laughs> well, that's a reason. That's a good reason enough to do another podcast on on all of this. Perfect. We'll look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Adam. Let's move on to today's second question. This one comes from Mark, and it is about prayer. Mark asks us, if God answers yes to only those prayer requests that are his will, then why ask for anything other than his will generally and spend the rest of prayer time in thanksgiving or praise and accept outcomes based on 1 John 5, 14 and 15? For okay. example, maybe God doesn't want me to be healed or to get a certain job. Why wouldn't I just pray for God's will and then accept and be thankful for the outcome? So before I answer this, Dad, I probably should read. No, I'm not going to answer this. Before you answer this, <laughs> I <laughs> should probably read. No, no, thank you. We'll let you. We'll let you handle that part. But we should probably read First John five fourteen and fifteen. So let me do that part. <laughs> Here's the verse. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Well, we're we're not getting easy questions this time, are we? At, no, at all. <laughs> this is a tough one. I don't remember any of the questions ever on our Q and A's that they were really that. None of them have been simple. Uh, we but have that's very okay. great that's listeners. Why, <laughs> yeah, we have great listeners with great questions. So, Mark, if I understand your question, and first of all, thanks for sending it in. If I understand it correctly, I think what I'm hearing you asking is this. Why pray if God has already decided everything? Why why should we pray if the future is fixed already by God? I hope I'm hoping I'm understanding your question right. So if God has predetermined every event, how do we reconcile that fact with the power of prayer to actually change things? Which James 5:16 tells us. Well, I I think the answer may be found if we have a right understanding of God's providential determination, which is different from what is called fatalism. Determinism holds that God has determined every single event, and I believe that. At each moment, there is only one possible future, and that's the future God has determined. But that is different than fatalism. Fatalism and um, that word is F-A-T-A-L-I-S-M. Fatalism is the view 
that our choices don't affect the future. And, and some Christians think of God's providence not in determination, but in fatalism. And I think they do that incorrectly. And it sounds something like, well, if God has determined every future event, then my choices and my prayers don't have any effect on the future. So let me see if I can illustrate it. Suppose God has determined to heal Chris of cancer three months from now. It will happen, and it cannot fail to happen. The That event, that healing, is fixed. But so is every other event leading up to that moment, including the prayers offered on Chris's behalf. God governs all events in his universe, including the small ones, which lead up to big ones. So what happens in the future then does depend on what we do and pray in the present. Some things have happened only because they were prayed for. They would not have happened if they were not prayed for. And we know, I think, from both Scripture and our own personal experiences, we know God responds to prayer. Just biblically, we see it illustrated. Moses prayed for food and water for the Israelites. Hannah prayed for a child. Elijah prayed for a drought. And then Elijah prayed for rain. And these things came to pass. The events God had already determined, they came to pass. But God also determined that Moses, Hannah, and Elijah would pray for those events such that the events would not have taken place if they did not pray for them. Sam Storm puts it so well, says this, We must never presume God will grant us, apart from prayer, what he has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. Let me say that again. We must never presume God will grant us, apart from prayer, what he has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. So to say we don't need to pray because God has determined all outcomes is as unreasonable as saying we don't need to take medicine or I don't need to work for a living. God's, God's just determined that I'm going to have su such and such a life, but I wouldn't need to work. Or, you know, that would mean I wouldn't have to look for a spouse because God has determined all outcomes. It, it, well, not if. It is true. God has determined all outcomes, but God has also determined the means by which those outcomes will take place. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Miracles, and he writes this, The event in question has already been decided. In a sense, it was decided, quote, before all worlds, end quote. But one of the things taken into account in deciding it, and therefore one of the things that really caused it to happen, may be this very prayer that we are now offering. So again, God determines both the ends and the means, including the prayers we offer, and he's ordained his interventions to be in response to faith-fueled prayers and petitions. Put simply, God gives us the privilege of including us in his work. If our understanding of God's providence leads us to pray less about the here and now, then we ought to rethink our understanding of God's providence. That's great. I love how you said God gives us the privilege of including us in his work. Uh, and we can look back all throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, of when the Israelites in the Old Testament called out to God and he heard them. And then their future was changed because of their repentance, their calling out to him. Uh -huh. And in the New Testament, you and you gave us lots of examples, both old and new, of people praying, and then that affected the outcome. So 
I like that. God's giving us the privilege of including us in his work. And we can see that happen in scripture. And so we trust he's been faithful to, you know, that in the past and he'll be faithful to our prayers here and now. So exactly right. right. Yep. Mark, thanks for that question. Here's the last one. This one was not sent in by a listener, but it comes from something that you have come across in your pastoral ministry. So why don't you tell us about this last question? Yeah, I just thought I, th- this is nothing like the first two questions today, but I, I run across it quite a bit. I know we have a number of pastors who listen to Kitchen Table Theology, and I'm sure, Pastor, you've run across this a lot as well. And I, I ran across it again recently, and I just sort of tucked it away, and I said, maybe I'll just bring that up on the podcast. And basically, the question is along these lines. Is it all right to be angry when someone I love dies? Or is, is being angry a lack of faith in God and his sovereign plan? It, is, it, is it all right to be angry, or should I, should I not be angry when someone I, I love dies? And, and if I am angry when that happens, is that me having a lack of faith in trusting God and his sovereignty? That, so that's, that that's a, kind of how it sounds. That is a tough one. And I'm sure it sounds like whenever someone is asking that question, they're asking it in the midst of an incredibly painful situation. Of, so yeah. how do we answer that well, question? And, yeah, if they're not asking it, they're feeling it. And a lot of times the, the questioning, the, the discussion about it comes later, but in the throes of grief, when they feel angry, they might not talk about it, right? but they, it's certainly real, and it's an emotion right. that they're dealing with. So I think the answer is just something along these lines. It's not only all right to be angry when someone you love dies, but it's also appropriate. Anger is one of the natural stages of grief. And, you know, not everyone may feel anger as an emotion, as a grief response, but it it is an expected stage in the grieving process. You know, Jesus demonstrated human emotions, and we we see him responding emotionally when his friend Lazarus died in John 11. We're told that Jesus wept, and the word wept is also translated deeply moved, very deeply moved. And that Greek terminology of deeply moved is also used elsewhere in Scripture to contain a sense of indignation or rage. So could Jesus have, when we read Jesus wept, could he have been also experiencing the emotion of anger at the death of his friend Lazarus? And I think (laughs) I don't have any problem at all in believing that Jesus has more right to be anger uh, to be angry at death than any of us. He understands it more than any of us do. You know, death isn't good. Death, it's not something that should be sentimentalized. It's the result of the fall. It's the result of sin. It separates us from our loved ones. And Jesus wasn't an automaton. You know, he wasn't some robotic entity. And even today, he's present with us in our times of sorrow and anger, and he's reminding us of the eternal, even in the midst of that. So I think Kitchen Table Theologian, if you have ever dealt with that, maybe you're dealing with it right now, or you have a friend who is, rather than view anger during a, a grieving period as a sign of a lack of faith, I think it's, it's much better and spiritually right and healthy for us. To, to view it as a natural part of the grieving process. All right. Thank you. So that was three 
Pretty tough questions, but Dad, I love you taught me this when I was young, and I still use it to this day, and you did it again here today. All three questions, we went to the scripture to find the answer, and that's just a good way to go through life. I think things that we're questioning, wondering about, the answer is in scripture, so that's where we're going to look for these. There you go. Kitchen Table Theologians, if you have more questions, feel free to send them in, and we will hopefully not go as long before we do another Q&A episode, and we can try to answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening today where do they where would they send a question to you can if we have a question yes let's email us at pastor jeff at lowcountrycc.org and we are happy to keep track of that and hold on to it until our next episode and we will try to answer it take a moment if you would today to rate and review our podcast including on spotify and on itunes this helps new listeners find the show and for us to spread the kitchen table theology love Don't forget, check out today's episode notes as well. We listed a lot of verses today. If you need to go back and read some of those Old Testament stories, all of the references will be in the show notes. As always, thanks are due to our friends at Lowcountry Community Church here in Bluffton, South Carolina, for making our podcast possible. And don't forget that if you desire to go deeper and to begin or even further your education, you can check out our podcast partner, Columbia International University. They offer everything from certification programs in undergrad, graduate, and doctoral degrees, all within a biblical framework and foundation. You can find out all you need to know at ciu.edu. Head on over to jeffcranston.com for more information. Our email address is there also. Find out more about Pastor Jeff, his books, sermons, leadership notes, and blog posts. And Lord willing, next week, we'll be back with another great episode. There it is. Now go deeper. And until next time, always remember that the real power of theology is not only knowing it, but applying it. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast with Pastor Jeff Cranston. Join us next time for more insights into biblical truth. If you'd like to know more on today's topic, please check out our show notes. If you have a question from today's podcast, kindly email us at pastorjeff at lowcountrycc.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review? We deeply appreciate your help in getting the word out. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or in your favorite podcasting app to continue this journey with us as we learn about and apply God's word to our lives. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time here at Kitchen Table Theology.